Well, last week, as we continued with our study of the book of 2 Samuel, we watched as the God who has already, by that point in the story, taken David from a lowly shepherd boy to the exalted king of Israel, a guy with a city of his own, the city of David in Jerusalem, a guy with his cedar wood paneled palace. We saw all of his wealth and opulence last week. All right, we watched as God came to that David who he's done that much for already, and he came to him and said, David, you're going to need to take a seat because if you think I've been good to you thus far, (laughs) you've seen nothing. Because David, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and in my covenant, I'm going to make certain promises to you. And some of those promises you will actually see with your waking eyes in this life, but then some of them will go even beyond your life. So I'm going to come to you with promises, David, that will not just encompass you and your lifetime. I'm going to come to you with promises that will encompass your progeny, your lineage, your children, and all of their lifetimes as well. And so, for example, David, first of all, I will make a great name for you. Great names, we talked about last week, are made, and they're not, interestingly enough, made by us. They're not made by the applause that we receive. They're not made by our fans and our friends. They're not made by our families. They're not made by the press. They're not flash-in-the-pan things. Great names, truly great names, are enduring. And they're made by God alone, and they're a gift, and they are utter and and complete grace. God comes to David and he says, first of all, I'm going to make you a great name. So you cannot have to worry about that, David. I've got that covered. I have it for you. You're welcome. And I want to pause for a minute and I want you to begin to consider in your heart some of the things that that sort of takes off the plate for David and feel the relief associated with it. So now all of a sudden, David, who is the center point of this nation, he is the new king of Israel everybody's focused on him. All the paparazzi, everybody wants to know they're following his every word. I mean, you can get the idea. Can you imagine the scrutiny of being the king, the sovereign monarch of the land? Okay, well, suddenly David is feeling a whole lot more relieved, is he not? Because his name, that's in the hands of God. So I don't need to worry so much about the opinions of other people. I don't need to, to fret and to stare at the ceiling and to stress big time over trying to manage everyone's expectations. Good grief, I don't have to please everyone or even just some people. I'm free of those things. I'm free from emotional manipulation, political maneuvering in that sense. David's sandals are getting a little lighter. So David, I got that one covered. Great name, that's mine. You're welcome. But that's not all. He then came and said, I'm going to give you a secure land. Now, again, feel that from the perspective of David. So my security is in you, Lord. You got that covered? Yep. I got it. Nice. Oh, and David, I'm going to give you rest from all of your enemies. How do you like that one? That's sweet, isn't it? Good grief, you've got it. I mean, ultimately, you have me and my enemies covered. You're going to take care of that? God, I am. Okay, so great name, that's you. All right, security, that's you. All of my enemies, you've got all of these things covered for me. Yes, I do, David. Again, you're welcome. Like 10 million pounds just fell off of this guy's shoulders. Practically speaking... Game changer. But that's not all, because again, he doesn't just make those promises to him that David will realize in his lifetime. He comes to David and he says, Oh, yeah, by the way, I got your kids too. Now feel that as a parent. We are all of us concerned with us and ours, are we not? Yeah, I've got your kids, David. So you will have a secure house. Here's the key word forever. You will have a secure kingdom, again, forever. You will have a secure throne, and again, 
forever. And so David's, or the promises of God to David encompass way more than just Solomon and Rehoboam and so forth moving on down his line. Ultimately, these promises are realized in Christ, the true son of David, the true and the living God, who in this very moment, in this very moment, reigns and rules from heaven's throne over everything and over everyone. And again, what I want you to see is the difference that those kinds of promises that God makes to David, okay, make therefore then in his life. It changes things. Because if all of a sudden it isn't about us and ours and it's not all on me, it's all on him, oh, man, suddenly I don't have to operate the way that everyone else does and the way that a lot of us do. I don't have to operate out of fear and self-preservation. I can begin to operate from a place of security, a security that's not found in my efforts and all of that, and thank God, because then I'd feel insecure, but a security that is found in my King and in His sure and certain promises to me. And from that place of security, as a result of those promises, I can now reorient myself toward the world, and no longer then do I operate from an orientation of me and mine of fear and self-preservation, but I can begin instead to operate from a position of security, and my attitude then is one of love and self-sacrifice. It's an amazing thing, and it's not just something that David gets to enjoy, because in Jesus Christ, we too have a king whose sure and certain promises to us enable us to stop living out of fear and self-preservation and instead to begin living out of love and self-sacrifice. And in fact, they don't just enable us to do it, but as we'll see as the story plays its way out, they compel us to do it. Like at some point, you got to go, my goodness, in light of the goodness of God to me, in light of what He's given to me, in light of what He's promised to me, in light of how dadgum undeserving I am of all of that, how could I not live like this? So we pick up our study today in 2 Samuel 9, beginning in verse 1 where we read, and David, who again has just been made the recipient of all of these amazing promises by God, now said, and now notice the question. It's a very significant question. He says, is there still anyone left alive? That's the idea of the house of Saul, the previous king of Israel. Now, here's why somebody in David's position would ask a question like that, so that they could then, you know, line up the FBI and the CIA and put wanted posters all over the land and hunt this person down or these people down and kill them. That's the modus operandi of the ancient Near East. When someone outside of the royal house of the previous king somehow, some way became the king, agenda item number one is kill everyone in the former royal house so that no rival arose. Get the idea? Nobody can then later on claim, particularly if the opinion polls start blowing against you, that they, in fact, ought to be the king, and what would motivate that kind of action? Fear, self-preservation. Politically, it's very convenient to do that. And so then when David said, is there anyone still alive, left of the house of Saul, you know, here's what everybody in the room who's hearing this coming out of his mouth in real time is, are expecting him to say next. They're expecting him to say, so that I can hunt him down and kill him. That's what you do when you operate out of fear and self-preservation. It's me and mine. It's not what you do 
when you operate out of love and selflessness from a place of security that is found not in you and what you can create, but instead is found in the sovereign Lord of the universe. And so David says something very different. He says, is there still anyone left alive of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? And then he says, for Jonathan's sake, and if you're just kind of jumping into the story, uh, you may be wondering who Jonathan is, and it's actually very important to the story. Jonathan was the son, the oldest son of the former king who was Saul. So Jonathan was the crown prince of Israel. Jonathan was the one who, by means of hereditary succession, really should have succeeded Saul on the throne. Kind of a big deal. A natural rival for David, but not in his case. Jonathan was a great and godly man, and as we saw things play out, Jonathan recognized how God was moving in the nation of Israel, and he realized that instead of him becoming the next king, it was the will of God that David would become the next king. And even though his father Saul tried to kill David, because again, that's what you do with your rivals when you're a king, Jonathan behaved very differently. He was David's best friend, and he said, look, here's the deal. I'm going to do everything I can to support you, David, as the next king. And way, way, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, what did David do in return? He made a covenant with Jonathan, and it was a secret covenant just between the two of them. And in that covenant, he said, look, when I become the next king, I am not going to do what every other king in the ancient Near East would do, which is kill you and every member of your family. I will not do that. But here's the deal. Since that covenant was made back in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan has died. And it was a secret covenant, so like nobody knows about it. And Jonathan isn't there to protest. And Jonathan does have an heir. In fact, he has two. A son and a grandson who we'll meet here in a second. Threats, are they not? And not just to David's generation but to the generation of David's kids. So the question then is, well, will David honor the secret covenant? And the answer to that is an overwhelming yes. And here's what I mean by that. David will not just allow them to continue to live. He will behave toward them in a way that the entire rest of the world had to look at and go, what in the world are you thinking? Like if I had been on David's council of advisors and he had come to me and said, okay, here's the deal, sacred covenant with Jonathan, you know, we found an heir, actually two, what do you think I ought to do? I'd say, well, you know, look, I mean, I think if you made the commitment with him that you won't kill any of his heirs, you shouldn't kill any of his heirs. I mean, we know what the risk is in that. We need to keep an eye on this guy. We need to keep an eye on his son. Your son, whoever takes over for you, is going to need to keep an eye on him. I mean, we'll need to kind of watch him carefully just in case because we've got to manage this risk. But good grief, whatever you do, David, don't exalt him. Whatever you do, don't empower him. Whatever you do, don't lift him up in the midst of this people. Don't make it easier for him to make his claim. David said, is there still anyone left alive of the house of Saul so that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? And now there was a servant of the house of Saul and his name was Ziba. And so they called Ziba to David figuring, okay, well, if there's anybody around who knows the answer to that question, this is the guy. And so the king said to Ziba, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. All right, so I guess that means yes then. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul 
that I may show the kindness, now this is the key, of who? Of God to him. What is David saying? He's saying, listen, in light of the overwhelming goodness and kindness that God has shown to me, the way that he has treated me and exalted me from shepherd boy to king and way beyond that, promise upon promise upon promise upon promise, promises that I will realize in this life and that make me secure, promises that my children will realize after I'm gone and that right now make me secure. How in the world could I not fulfill this covenant that I made with Jonathan and bless his children? How could I not do that? These promises of God to us allow us to stop living out of self-preservation and fear and begin to live out of love and self-sacrifice. My goodness. David is saying, look, not only do they free me to do this, they require me to do this. I am compelled to do this, and so are we. So are we. The promises of our King that He has made to me, that He has made to you, that He made to all of us who have confessed our sins and weakness and everything else and claimed Him, not just as our Savior, but as our Lord and as our King, are so sure and so certain and so great and so overwhelmingly incredible, mind-blowing, really, that not only should they create the security necessary for us to stop living for me and mine and to start orienting ourselves toward the world instead in love and in self-sacrifice because we're secure, but they in fact compel us to do so. I want you to think for a second about just a few of the promises that God has made to you, some of the things He's already done for you and that He's promised to evermore do for you. And I want to begin with His love. God has already loved you. And it's easy to doubt that, isn't it? Particularly when we have a crummy day. You know, it's like, Lord, I feel so undeserving of your love. And, you know, I mean, I want to affirm that for a second. That's true for all of us. There is none of us deserving of His love, but that's kind of the point. He has, in the cross, forever stated His love for me and for you, where the innocent hung and suffered and died for the guilty, and that would be us. In love, God gave His Son that He might have us, and His love does not waver, and His love endures forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, no matter what kind of day you're having, no matter what it is that you've done. And I'll tell you what that not only allows us to do, frees us to do, but compels us to do, it is to begin to reorient ourselves to the people in our world and to authentically begin to love them. Even though we know that they, like we, okay, are probably undeserving of our love, like we're undeserving of God's, that they may even take advantage of our love. I mean, who knows what they're going to do with my heart, Lord? Well, yeah, but your heart's secure, is it not? In Christ? It pushes us out into our families, into our offices, into this community, into our schools, into our relationships, and it pushes us out as people who are not moving out into the world looking to take care of me and mine at the expense of other people 
but looking to love other people at our own expense, knowing that God's got it. Hey, you know what? I got this one. You're welcome. It changes everything. Our king has forgiven us, and he's promised, incidentally, that his forgiveness will last forever. His forgiveness is of such a power and of such a nature that there's absolutely nothing that we've ever done or will ever do that it does not completely overwhelm. You're safe. You're good. But what does that compel us to do? Having experienced that kind of forgiveness, having known it, knowing it daily... Does that not compel us to authentically forgive other people? Even though we know that they may presume upon our forgiveness. You know what, God, I've been down this path with this person. I've forgiven them 15 times. and You know, I'm just not going 16. Well, how many times have we betrayed the forgiveness of God? You know, we've prayed, in essence, Lord, forgive me, but I'm going to do it again tomorrow, just so you know that. I mean, you and I both know that, if we're honest, and I feel kind of crummy about it, but it's where it's going, and, oh, God will forgive you. That's wickedness. But he has forgiven you. Our king is one for us. Think of the things that he has defeated for you. Everything, in fact, that needed to be defeated, he's defeated already for you in Christ. He has defeated sin. He's defeated death. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated all of the spiritual forces of darkness. He's defeated discouragement. He's defeated... I mean, just make the list. It's unbelievable what he has defeated for you. Now, here's what that allows you and me to do. It allows us from the security of knowing that in Jesus, we've won. We have a champion. He's won. We're good. You're welcome, Tom. Okay, so now what does that free me to do in you? It frees us to lose. It allows us to do that. Indeed, it compels us at times to do that if that's what would be the most loving thing for us to do. And we are all about our rights, and we are all about being proven right, and we're all about being seen as right. We get all of our, you know, justice all pent up within us. Sometimes it may be better, the most loving thing, for us to let somebody else win. You know what? You take this one. You win. And that doesn't eat me up because I've won in Christ. He's won for me. Our King has defended us, and He evermore will be our defender against absolutely everything. And then beyond that, He's promised to be our avenger. Think about that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I, what, will repay. Not, you know, I'll probably eventually get to it sometime if I have 30 seconds in it. I will repay. Okay, that not only frees us from the ability to have to repay ourselves, if you will, to gain that payment from that burning desire to avenge ourselves. And look, that's a fire. I mean, it's a conflagration. It frees us from that. In fact, at times, it compels us to lay it down, to give it to God and say, you know what? You're my avenger. You do this. And then lastly, but there are so many more, our King has secured us, and He's done it both in this life and in the next, and not just spiritually, but materially as well, though it needs to be stated that when it comes to the material piece of that, He's promised to meet our needs, not our wants. And I know that we bicker with Him over what a need really is, but what that does is that frees us with, from so much stress. I mean, it starts feeling like the sandals of David. It's like, you know, Tom, I've got this. I, I, you're welcome. And He has it for you as well. And here's the deal. What that frees us to do and even compels us to do is to be generous with others 
in a way that everybody else who's viewing life in this world and operating from fear and self-preservation look at and go, yeah, that doesn't make any sense, which is exactly what David does next. It's how he treats this, this guy who is a son of Jonathan. And so again, in verse 2, we read, And so they called Ziba to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? He's proactively looking for opportunities to do this. He's not waiting for them to come to him. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, to which he then adds this interesting little detail when he says he is crippled in his feet. Now, why is he crippled in his feet? Well, if you go way back again into the narrative, maybe you'll recall that he's crippled in his feet because on that fateful day when King Saul and Crown Prince Jonathan and the other two sons of Saul as well were killed in battle by the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. On that fateful day, this guy that we're reading about now was five years old, and he was in the palace of Saul. And so when the word reached the palace that the king was dead, that Jonathan was dead, that the other two sons were dead, and no doubt also that the Philistines were coming, the nurse of this five-year-old boy snatched this little boy up in her arms, and she began to flee for their lives, and she fell somehow in her running. And as a result of that fall, this kid from that day was lame for life. And we don't know why exactly that is. You know, was he paralyzed? I think that probably what happened is his legs were so badly broken that with the limited capabilities medically and technology of their day, they couldn't be repaired. And so they healed in such a way that, that he was lame. Which, if you process it from his perspective, means that this guy went from being the grandson of the king the son of the crown prince and possibly next up in line in terms of hereditary succession, a kid with a very promising future and a really, by the way, wonderful dad on that day to a cripple, to somebody who was bereft of his future, to someone who was bereft of his really wonderful dad. And to a guy then who is consigned to living out the rest of his life in fear and in hiding. And why is that? Because David became the next king, guys. And David was not from the royal house of Saul. And modus operandi in the ancient Near East is when the king is not from the royal house. Okay, what does he do? Yeah, FBI, CIA, we hunt down and we kill the descendants of the former royal house because we don't want any rivals. Not for us and not for our kids. And now notice where this guy's been living. It says in verse 4, the king said to Ziba, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Lodabar means literally nothing. And so there's a sense in which this guy that I just described is now living in the land of nothing. That's where he's been. And then the king sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And so David brings him forth, now follow this, from the land of nothing. And Mephibosheth, that's his name. Some of you moms are writing that down, Mephibosheth, that would be awesome. (laughs) That's tough to say. It would be even more difficult to bear. The name means one of two things. It means either one who scatters shame 
or it means from the mouth of shame. So this little boy went from being the kid that everyone in the entire nation wanted to be, no doubt, bar none, to being the man that nobody in the entire nation wanted to be. None. No one. A crippled man living in the land of nothing who scatters shame. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David freaking out quaking, I think visibly, with fear, and he fell on his face, and he paid homage to David. And David said to him, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David, seeing his fear, says, Do not fear. Those are some of the coolest words in the Bible, and you find them all over the place. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do you know where you most often find them? In the presence of some angelic being, some heavenly being, or in the presence perhaps of the Lord Himself. It's like you come into the presence of the real King, and, and you're feeling pretty good about yourself right up until about then, and then all of a sudden you realize, I've got some reason to fear here. It's a face-down experience. It's a trembling experience. It's a uh-oh moment. And deep down in all of our hearts, if we're honest, I think we know that that's what it would be for us as well. But notice what David says. He says to this man, do not fear. He's reassuring him. And here's why. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. What does God say to those of us who have faith in Christ? who have reason to fear, to tremble, to be face down in His presence, really and truly and authentically. He says to us, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of my Son Jesus, who by His life, who by His sufferings, who by His death, burial, and by His resurrection as well, has won your freedom from sin and from death, has delivered you from the land of nothing, has removed the name of shame from you and given you an entirely new name of child of God son or daughter of the king, and whoevermore will heal your lameness. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. But he doesn't just let us live. David doesn't just let this guy live. He says to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and, and and is an awesome word, when it's followed by the rest of this sentence, he says, and I will restore to you all of the land of Saul, the former king, your father. Now, picture this because David is announcing this, and I'm sure that there are all kinds of custodians and court officials, you know, his administration. I just think at that point, you just started hearing thud as these guys started falling over, just fainting every single one of them. What, whoa, 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 I, I, time out. You know what, David, I think we ought to talk about this. So we're, we're, he retracts that. Wait, let's, get, let's get together and see. What are you doing? I mean, it's bad enough you guys are going to let him live. We're going to have to manage the risk of his life and of his grandson and of any other progeny that comes. So you leave behind a real problem for your kids, first of all, by just allowing these guys to live. But then secondly, you are going to exalt him in the presence of the entire nation by giving him the entire estate, all of the holdings of the guy you just replaced as king. Make sense of that for me. It does not make sense. And it makes perfect sense. 
What is David's security? It's not politics. It's not wrangling. It's not maneuvering. It's not his capacities. It's not his great brilliance, though he is greatly brilliant. It's not his ability to kind of manage it and keep it under control. It's not the security systems that he puts in place, kind of David's homeland security, and he's going to spy on these guys, and we'll just manage this. It's none of those things. He's not worried about managing risk. It's the promises of God. They have made him so secure that he can open up his kingdom and do something like this without fear. He doesn't operate out of fear. And then he goes beyond it. Not only does he say, I will restore to you all of the land of Saul, your father, he then goes, and, so it's a second and, and you shall eat at my table always as if you were not only a part of the former royal house, but a part of my royal house as well. Mephibosheth, I'm going to take you in like one of my own sons. And Mephibosheth, who also passed out, so that, you know, they needed to keep using the smelling salts. They'd wake him up and tell him a little more, and he'd faint again, and then they wake him up. And finally, when he's conscious and he's got the whole message and he comprehends it, no doubt he's blown away. He paid homage to David, and he said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He understands. It's humble. What a recipient of grace. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, You have a new job and a new mission. And here it is. All that belonged to Saul and all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. Ziba passes out. They wake him back up. We're not done yet. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. You, you shall make it as productive as it possibly can be. You shall generate as much wealth as you can for your new master, and you shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. The position of honor. And then we're told that Ziba has 15 sons and 20 servants, which is That's good, because he's going to need them to run this big estate. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth, we now read, had a young son of his own whose name was Micah and who could potentially in a future generation become a problem. David's not worried about that. He has the promises of God. From that security, he lives. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servant. I knew I'd mess it up eventually. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And now it says, and this just bookends the story, now he was lame. In both of his feet, and then you come to chapter 10, and don't worry, I'm not going to now preach through chapter 10. I'm just going to tell you, and if you've done your personal worship this week, you already know this, that in chapter 10, what does David do? He again proactively looks for the opportunity to show love and generosity and kindness and goodness, the kind of love, generosity, and kindness and goodness that God has shown toward him to the son of a yet another dead king with whom he had previously made a covenant. He's honoring his covenants even beyond the death of the people that he made the covenant with, just like God said, hey, I will honor this covenant beyond your death, David. He's completely changed in terms of how he's oriented toward the world, and instead of living out of fear and self-preservation, he's been freed and even compelled 
to live differently. Out of the security of God's promises, he's compelled to move out into the world in love and self-sacrifice. All right, so here's the question. And make it personal. Like, maybe the Spirit will say, "Uh uh-huh, here's the answer to that. I find that it often works that way. He'll just give you a name. Who in your world needs to experience the kindness of God from you? Whatever form it may take. So they need to experience love. You're like, no, no, I don't want to trust them with my heart. I know what they might do. Wait a minute, I'm sorry. Who has your heart? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's got that one. Yeah, you're welcome. What about forgiveness? Well, they don't earn it. They haven't deserved it. They ha- uh, wait a minute. I, did you? I, I missed that. Is that the way that works? It's not, is it? His overwhelming kindness compels us to begin to behave like Him. Who needs for you to lose? Because that would be the most loving thing for you to do, the most selfless. Who needs your defense? Who needs your generosity in whatever form that may take? Sometimes the most expensive thing to give someone is your time, it's your energy, it's your heart. It's... But that's what they need. Okay, so who in your world needs to experience the kindness of God from you? And then lastly, what is preventing you from giving it to them? Are you oriented toward them from the posture of me and mine? I've got to take care of me and mine. Fear and self-preservation. If I can afford to do a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there, I'm going to do that. But other than that, that's it, because I've got to take care of me and mine. It's all on me. It's all about me. I've got to get it done. Or is it from the posture of those who bear and are overwhelmed by the promises of God and all the securities thereof, and who are free, therefore, to give our lives away, to love people as we've been loved? Because that's what the promises of our King do us not only allow us to do. When they overwhelm us like they did David, they compel us to do it. So may we be overwhelmed by the goodness of God and then go out and show the world that same kind of goodness to His glory because the world will not understand it. It will be different. (laughs) People will start passing out like, what? Just... Keep the smelling salts with you, really, and Christ will be honored. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You um, for our Savior. We thank You for the humble servant of the Lord who emptied Himself that we might be made full. Lord, who lost in some sense that we might win. God, we praise You for Him. I pray that as we come to His Word in song, as we come to His Word um, in prayer, as we come to His Word in personal worship and here, that we would get a glimpse of Him and of all of His goodness. Lord, that Your Spirit would strengthen us in our faith in His character, in His power, in His wisdom, in His ways, and in who we are through our faith in Him. Lord, give us a courageous faith behaves differently than everyone else. Free us of our fear and all of our inclinations toward self-preservation. And give us ears to hear what your Spirit then would say to us about how to move out into our world, to whom and in what way 
in love and self-sacrifice. Do these things, Lord, that Jesus might be seen in this world and lifted up. Amen.